Good morning. For those in the foyer, go ahead and come on in. We're going to grab our seats and get started in our adult Bible Sunday school hour. We've been going through a study of systematic theology as a church body, and we are going to continue that this morning. So I'm going to open us in prayer, and we'll dive in together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your worthiness. You are worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor and strength. And Lord, that's not something, your worthiness, that can grow. But it's something that we need to get a bigger vision of. I pray that you would magnify yourself in our eyes this morning through your word, through what you've accomplished in salvation. And that we would grow in our love and gratitude and thankfulness to you. And that that would transform and change the way we live. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started in our introduction to soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, and we talked about why the doctrine of salvation is important. We talked about how it all belongs to God's salvation, and that the purpose of salvation is for God's glory, and that's important for us to understand. You can think um, of an illustration of the purpose of any sort of object. So if you have a hammer and you try to use it as a toothpick, It wouldn't really serve the purpose with which it's designed. Or if you took one of these TVs and you tried to use it as a trampoline, maybe a kid has done that before. It wouldn't really work super great. That's not the purpose with which it's used for. So understanding the purpose of something is important, and we wanted to take time to look at that. We also wanted to look at the goal. We wanted to look and understand what is the goal of this study, and it's for God to produce fruit in our lives for his glory. We want to grow in our love for one another and our love for our Heavenly Father. We are aiming to get a greater grasp of God's sovereign grace toward us, toward me, a sinner. We ought to personalize that goal because theology is supposed to lead to doxology. It's supposed to lead to praise, and doctrine ought to lead us to practice. It ought to change the way we live. So that's our um, summary of last week's lesson for us. And we're also going to be overviewing today um, the doctrine of salvation. So today our goal, our outline per se, is to answer two questions. Our goal is to answer what is salvation, and to discuss that based on scripture, and how salvation happens. We're going to talk about what is salvation and how it happens. So first, let's talk about what it is. What is salvation? I think we ought to start with a definition. To understand definitionally what this word means, we ought to look at scripture. And that's our goal through this study, is to really ground what some of us know to be true in the authority of God's word in scripture. So as a definition, we can use some synonyms. We can see deliverance or rescue or protection or even victory. And we see this throughout scripture. We see this deliverance from suffering or rescue from harm or protection from danger or even victory over an enemy. We see this over and over in scripture. In the Old Testament, we see that God saves his people from their enemies. So there's a physical aspect that scripture talks about salvation. Also, we see in the New Testament, Paul talks about deliverance from prison in Philippians. That same idea of being saved from something. But scripture and this study of salvation, we really want to focus in on the spiritual aspect of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? And so spiritually, we see this good verse that that synthesizes this idea for us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13. Colossians 1.13 says, He, being God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. 
Jesus taught this way too when he was talking about um, what does it mean to be saved? It means to enter the kingdom of God. So there's, a, there's this idea of transferring, this, this idea of delivering out of harm and danger into God's kingdom. And if you look at every world religion, every single one of them talks about this idea of needing to be delivered. But each one has a different understanding of what you're to be delivered from or why it is needed or even how it can be received or some say achieved. And so we want to see what does scripture say about salvation. So let's look first at what's the problem. What is the problem? If this is an idea of deliverance in the word salvation, what are we needing delivered from? Well, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Speaking of, of mankind, we have all sinned. To, it means to miss the mark. It means to fall short. And we see this going all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis, God created the garden. He created a place and he created his people. And he put his people in his place to be under his rule, under his authority. And when they sinned, what it says is they rebelled against their authority. Sin, ultimately, that's what it is. It's rebellion against God. And so we see that God is the creator, and so he makes the rules, rightly so. And when we sin, we are rebelling against our creator. Ezekiel 20, 21 says, but, uh, referencing the children of Israel, but the children rebelled against me, God says. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to obey my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. They profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness. So it's, it's the idea of sinful rebellion earns something. And that's what we see in Romans 6.23, a familiar verse. It says, for the wages of sin is death. So our problem is that we're sinners, that God is holy, and we have rebelled against our creator. And in our rebellion, that earns something. That's a payment for something, like a job when you work. You earn a wage, and it's the same for our sin. Our works, our unrighteous, filthy rags, earns death and punishment and the wrath of God. So our, our problem is that we have a need, and our need is that we are dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're condemned before a holy God. That's the problem. And if we're to think about um, not only the problem of why uh, why we need salvation, but also what, does save, what are we saved from? And if we think about from what we're saved from to what we're saved to, we ought to think in these terms, we're saved from God's wrath to God's love. Some would say that this idea of being saved from God's wrath is, is heinous and crazy. And they say that, well, what we're really saved from is Satan. We're saved from the power of Satan. And what they're ultimately doing is putting Satan on the same authority level as God. And that's not what scripture teaches. It teaches that in salvation, God's wrath was poured out. Secondly, we need to understand too that this isn't something that we should oppose or think in opposition to one another. Like God's wrath is distinct and different from his love. And maybe an illustration would be helpful here. Um, the way I love my kids, right? The same love I have for my kids is the same motivation that would pour out my wrath on anyone that would try to touch them and hurt them, Right? Absolutely. It's the same source. It's the same motivation. And that's why God even said when he's uh, sending his people into the promised land, he says, you need to push out and wipe out all these Canaanites, not only for their sinfulness, but it would cause you to sin. It would cause you to turn away from my love and my personal relationship for you. And they would intermarry and they would turn away. 
It's important for us to understand that God's wrath and his love are not in opposition to one another. God is one in his perfections and holy. And not, we shouldn't get all, my theology teacher always said, don't get all choppy-choppy with God's character. You're always going to fall into a pitfall if you try to pit God's mercy against his justice or his love against his wrath. You're always going to fall off the horse into some sort of heresy. So we need to see unity in who God is. And we see that in salvation, but that's what we would say is from man's view. So from what we're saved from, we're looking up to say, I'm saved from God's wrath, which is earned by my sin, into a loving relationship with God. But if we look at it from God's perspective, here's what he's doing. He's saving the sinful enemy of his and making them holy children of his. That's what's happening in salvation. We're coming out of a sinful and um, hostile relationship to God, and we're being brought into a family. We're adopted by God into his family. But to do that, to be in the presence of a holy God, we must be cleansed, we must be purified, we must be made holy. That's what salvation addresses, our problem and bringing us into the solution. So for, for anyone this morning that's born, living, has a pulse, we need to recognize that um, you, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, your greatest problem is not your circumstances. It's not the evil world around you, and it's not even Satan. Your biggest and greatest problem is your sinful rebellion against a holy and all-powerful God. That is the problem. You need to be delivered. You need to be rescued. You need protection. You need victory. What you need is salvation. You need to be saved. So what is the plan? What is the plan then of salvation? Well, we saw last week that salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the owner of salvation, and so he is the one that can give it, that can provide it. And we ourselves are dead in our trespasses and sin, being dead. We don't have a pulse. We can't do anything about it. There's no action that we can take. We're unable, which we'll talk about through this study, to save ourselves. And so Because of God's glorious grace, he's made a plan. He made a plan in eternity past to save his people. Not by overlooking their sin, but by actually paying for their sin. This is where we get the idea of substitutionary sacrifice. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son. The son of God, the second person of the Godhead, became a human being, in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 and 14 lays this out clearly for us. It says um, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in 14 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the idea of the incarnation of Christ, his virgin birth. He was born as a man without a sin nature, and he's 100% God and 100% man. And in uh, 1 John 3, chapter 5, uh, Jesus is testified to have lived a sinless life. It says, in him there is no sin. He was perfect in his life. But he was also perfect in his death, perfect in his sacrifice. Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the perfect and ultimate sacrifice for God's people. His death as the God-man brings eternal blessing to all those who trust in him. He had to be God to satisfy the wrath of God, and he had to be man to pay for our sin debt. But that's not all. He also rose from the grave, just as he said he would three days later. He conquered sin, death, and the grave 
according to 1 Corinthians 15, and that confirmed God's satisfactory wrath poured out on Jesus, paid in full. His death brings life for all of those who trust in him and receive forgiveness for their sins. And that's not all. He's coming back again. He's coming back again. He says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am there you may be also. And we see this theme over and over again that God is preparing a place to bring in his people who he will make holy to be with him rightly under his rule forever. That is the plan of salvation and it's substitutionary sacrifice. That's the hinge with which things start to change. And we see, oops, I just scrolled super fast. We see that in substitutionary sacrifice, we see Christ's righteousness for man's unrighteousness. We see Christ's blessings for man's curse. And we see Christ's life for man's death. And in this substitute, we actually see that he takes upon himself our unrighteousness. He takes upon himself, Jesus Christ, our curse. And he takes our death, our punishment, our penalty for our sin. But not only that do we see, we also see that not, it's not just a, a reset button. Okay, if we just get our debt, if you think about money, if you think about a debt being paid, you just get reset to zero. But what we actually get in replacement of our sin is Christ's righteousness, Christ's blessing because we're reunited with him in Christ's life. We're promised eternal life. He took our sin so that he could give us his righteousness. This is the problem. This is the plan that God had before the foundations of the world. So far we've looked at the problem and the plan of salvation, but I want to take time this morning to also discuss the when, the when of salvation. So it doesn't start with the letter P, which really bugged me in preparing the PowerPoints. But I felt like it was a really good time for us to evaluate what Scripture says. So for those that are believers and, and we're reading through Scripture, oftentimes you get to this um, tense about salvation. So you see in Ephesians 2, 8, it says you have been saved. Or also Scripture talks about how believers are sanctified, which means to be set apart as holy. And so 1 Corinthians six eleven says they were sanctified, referring to believers. So this is idea of how salvation is really past. It's the past tense. And then we also see in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says regarding believers that they are being saved. And in Hebrews 10.14, they are being sanctified. So there's this sort of present tense involved in salvation. And we also see future tenses in Scripture. In Romans 5.9, it says that believers shall be saved. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that uh, that the Lord may sanctify them, speaking of a future tense. So how do we kind of reconcile these different tenses? What, how does this really apply in our lives, and when was this accomplished? I felt like it was important for us to understand regarding our study of salvation. And what I wanted to tell you is that there's some terminology for us to discuss this morning, some terminology. So when we're talking about the past, the present, and the future and regarding salvation, There's this idea of what are we being saved from? Sin is what we're being saved from because that earns God's wrath, right? So we're saved from, there's three ways, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin, if you see that in the far right column. Also, we have kind of theological terms that we put these into. First, we would say in the past, there's justification. This is saying Jesus died and paid the penalty for your sin, 
so that positionally he gives you his righteousness, pays your debt, and you are declared holy as Christ is holy before a holy God. You are declared righteous positionally. So in the past, this is done. Before, you're standing before holy God as a believer in Jesus Christ is done. But we also see the present tense, which we would call sanctification. Sanctification being this progressive process where we are being saved, those tenses in Scripture, and we're saved from, in process, this power of sin. So although he has saved us positionally, like a, like a courtroom um, in justification, progressive or sanctification um, is referring to the idea that we still have this mortal body. We're still living in a cursed world, and so we still deal with our sin nature. And so there's this um, aspect in salvation that God, by his grace, is still making us holy. He's making us holy. And then finally, uh, we would see this idea of glorification. This is the final future aspect of salvation, where we will be made perfect by God and his grace, and we'll be freed from the presence of sin, both in a cursed world and in our sinful nature, and we'll be giving glorified bodies. So these three tenses of salvation are important for us to understand when we read through scripture what is being talked about for believers. And I thought of um, an illustration that might be helpful. Uh, Somebody give me their favorite vacation spot that I can pronounce. Marco Island, I can pronounce that one. So let's say um, you planned a vacation to go to Marco Island. You made the plan, you get on the website, you book the trip, you pay for it. You have a vacation, right? And in process, you're so excited about it. You're telling all your friends, man, Marco Island's the great, I've heard this about it, you should come too. Here's the website, you should sign up, let's go together, that'd be great. And then you kind of prepare, you pack your bags, you're saying, I gotta get everything ready for my vacation that I have paid for and it's booked and it's ready to go. And then the day finally comes and you actually get on the plane and you travel to Marco Island and you arrive and you're just in bliss, right? You've, you actually are receiving the full blessings of that trip that was planned and paid for so long ago. So the difference is in salvation is that this vacation that we're talking about, which is salvation according to scripture, is not temporary, first of all. It's not a, a short-term trip that you get a little break. Um, it's for eternity. It's called eternal life. But also I need to point out, you can't plan it, you can't pay for it, you can't even prepare on your own, in your own strength for it, and you can't take yourself there. It's all God's work from start to finish. In all these tenses we see God's grace actively present and working in our lives. So we would say salvation from start to finish is 100% dependent on God. And that it is, uh, that is the primary reason why we started out by saying God gets the glory for all of this, because he is the one who is accomplishing salvation. So in light of this idea of these tenses we see in scripture, some might walk away, even as a believer, and say, man, this is kind of confusing to understand um, the different ideas of the timetable here. So it might make you question, like, how can I know for sure? Like, with all these different aspects, how can I know for sure that I'm saved? And if you think with me for a minute, I wanted to um, think about how in God's plan, even in this um, process of what God has accomplished, is accomplishing, it will complete, we see this beautiful threefold answer to the question, how can I know I'm saved? And Paul says it in 2 Timothy 1, 12. Paul says, for I know, I know whom I have believed in, and I am currently persuaded, convinced, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day in the future. 
So Paul's answer of how can I know that I'm being saved is actually all three of these tenses. He says, I know for sure because God made a promise and he fulfilled it in the past. That he is making a promise and I'm experiencing God's actual grace in my life as I grow to be less like me and more like Christ. And I know for sure that he has promised that he will take me home, that he will make me holy. And that's why I can know for sure because he's made a threefold promise and God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. So the answer in this situation of how can I know for sure that I'm saved is all three of these are vitally important to the believer to understand what God has done, how God is working today, and what he will do in regards to salvation. This ought not be something that confuses us, but rather provides a wide and firm foundation by which we can know that we are in Christ. So this morning we've talked about what salvation is, but we also want to spend some time this morning consider how it happens, how salvation happens During the Reformation, there were kind of five primary points that came out as a conflict between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation. And they summarized these in what are called the five solas. And two of these we've really already referenced earlier in our lesson. We talked about um, soli deo gloria, all to the glory of God alone. So uh, we talked about that last lesson that all of this and all of creation is about glorifying God. That is the primary goal, and it's for him alone. But we also see uh, sola scriptura. So by scripture alone, scripture alone is the highest authority, and we've been using that as our tool to understand and study this doctrine of salvation. But we also want to understand these three, sola gratia, solo fide, and solus Christus. Sola gratia, meaning by grace alone. Sola fide, meaning through faith alone. And solus Christus, meaning in Christ alone. So how salvation happens is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we're going to take time this morning to look through uh, these three solas. So first, let's talk about by grace. How are we saved? We would say And scripture would testify that we are saved by grace. But what does that mean? Grace, by definition, is a free gift. It's getting something that you do not deserve and you cannot earn. And when we speak of God's grace, we ought to understand God's grace as his power at work in his creation to accomplish his divine purposes. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He, being God, made us alive together with Christ. And then he he kind of pauses to just declare this very clear statement. He says, by grace you have been saved. See that past tense. Grace has accomplished it. And he continues and he repeats it again in verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's been saved by grace. And his, he said his grace towards me was not even in vain. It accomplished what it was sent to do. And he says, on the contrary, here's the result. He says, I've worked harder than any of them. And he comments, though it was not I that was working, but the grace of God that is with me. So there's this idea of God's grace isn't just this Uh, magic fairy dust that's sprinkled on at the beginning of salvation, but it's actually something that's working in you still in sanctification. And 1 Peter 1.13, 
Peter references the third tense in regards to justification. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's saving grace is at work in justification, in sanctification, and in glorification. And the reason is so that all the glory goes to God for his amazing, powerful, saving grace. It's from start to finish. We need his grace, and he provides it. Romans eleven six, Paul's writing and talking about this remnant of Israel that was chosen by grace. And then he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. So he's, he's treating these as opposites. He's saying these are distinct from one another. There's no merit involved. He says, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So when we say by grace alone, it's because there's no um, cooperation with God's saving grace and justification. It's not something that we have any sort of active role in, but God's grace is at work to accomplish what he sends it to do. And he's saying that there's no basis for works because it's grace, because it's a gift. He accomplishes salvation. Again, we see it in Romans 6.23. We read the first half earlier. For the wages of sin is death. What you earn by your sinful works is death. But in contrast, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Works earn wages, but grace is free. I'll say that again. Works earn wages, but grace is free. You can't earn salvation because it is a gift. It belongs to God and only he can give it. So, the question at this point would say, okay, I see scripture talking about salvation being received by grace alone, so how do I access God's saving grace? How do I access God's saving grace? I can't earn it, I can't merit it, I can't activate it in any way, so how do I actually receive God's grace? Great question. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified positionally made right before God, saved from the penalty of sin. By faith, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Think about that. It's by faith. The way we actually obtain access to this saving grace. And he says, even in the present tense, this is the grace that once it has saved you, you are actively standing in it. For the rest of eternity, that's where you are resting in actively. And he says you've obtained access by faith. So what is, what is faith? Well, we have some verses in Scripture that help us define this. And so we're going to look at those this morning and then talk about kind of a summary and provide an acronym. Hopefully that will help us grasp this concept that Scripture talks about of faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This author of Hebrews is talking of faith in a way that he says it's assurance or there's this substance of things hoped for in the future. So he says there's this present substance of what I'm hoping for in the future. And he says not just a reality today in this life for something that's promised in the future, but it's also a conviction. And conviction is something that leads to action. It's something that leads to action, even if it's not seen. There's conviction that comes with it. I love referencing Romans 4.21, and in this passage, uh, Paul is arguing to explain that salvation has always been by grace through faith. 
And he says that he can look back all the way to Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham was like 100 years old and Sarah was like 90 years old. And there was this promise that they would have a child and that God had made. And it says that Abraham wasn't wavering in his faith. But in verse 21, it says Abraham was fully convinced. I love that idea. Fully convinced that God was able to do not just what he said he would do, but what he had promised. What he promised. There's a promise involved in faith. There's a person involved in faith. And there's conviction that that person is able to do what they said they would do. And scripture says right after it says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was fully convinced. So there's, there's kind of this three-tier aspect of faith according to scripture. Faith requires knowing something, affirming something, and relying on something. So I never won the spelling bee, but this looks like car to me if you look at it vertically. So think of car, right? K-A-R, I'm out of here. All right, so you know something, you affirm something, and you rely on something. So in these verses on faith, we see this definition of there has to be knowledge of this promise. They know who God is. They know what he has promised. And there's actually this idea of fully convinced, meaning that they rely on it. So think about an illustration of a car. So if you looked at a vehicle and you said it's got four tires, it's got a running engine, it's got a windshield, a back shield, it's got some doors that operate, it's got a trunk. Based on what I know, I know that this is a car. And then on top of that you say, I'm actually agreeing with other external sources that say this is a car. So I, I believe it's true. I, I know this is a car. This qualifies as a car. But if we actually stop there, we're at the same point that James talks about. He says, you do well believing that God is one. Even the demons believe and tremble. If we stop at simply um, information and acknowledgement of truth, we have not experienced what scripture calls believing and saving faith. We haven't. Because that is insufficient to save. That's not what's needed. The demons are there and they're receiving condemnation. They were cast out already. Judgment has been, has been accomplished on that. But what we see is that saving faith, according to scripture, requires all three. I not only need to know it's a car. I not only have to affirm to others and saying, based on external information, hey, yes, this is a car. I agree with that standard of that it's a car. But I actually need to get in the car and drive. I need to get in there and experience, hey, this is actually me putting my full weight on something else, trusting that it is going to accomplish what it says it's going to do. It's going to take me where it says it's going to go. That's saving faith to not just know information, not even just to simply affirm it, but to actually trust in Christ, to rely. Think about putting your weight fully on something. There's no weight distribution elsewhere. It's saying Christ alone, by faith alone, by his grace. That's all I have that is saving me from my sin. We need to know, affirm, and rely on the salvation that God has accomplished for his people. Continuing through some of these verses, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And he says here, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the outcome of saving faith, is salvation. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. Again, we see this idea of a promise, of knowing who God is, believing it's true, and relying on him to accomplish his promises. Conversely, we can see in John 8, 24, Jesus is speaking. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's saying without faith, you will die in your sins. Ephesians 2, 8, uh, a key verse for us in understanding by grace through faith in Christ. He says, for by grace you have been saved. He says, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And in this verse, Paul is specifying at least that faith is not your own doing, but also we would affirm that it's grace. That's why he says it's a gift. So it's not something that we're doing, which we'll talk about um, here in just a minute as well. Hebrews 12, 2, continuing on, we see that faith is something that God founds, God grants, God gives. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, who is titled the founder and perfecter of our faith. Philippians 1.29, Paul's writing, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There's two things listed there. What is granted to you? That you believe in him and that you suffer for his sake. Faith is also from God. It's not something that is our work. It's not something that we, that we have to do. He gives us grace and then it's our job to do something. We need to express our strong faith and that's how we receive salvation and some of you might ask well what about James what about the book of James James chapter 2 24 says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone and in verse 26 he says for the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead well this seems contrary to the header of the slide you say through faith alone there's a clear verse that says not by faith alone so How can we agree with that if Scripture is our final authority? Well, as we study through Scripture, we can understand this passage clearly that it is not in disagreement with the rest of Scripture that testifies that faith is um, not enabled or a work. Because what James is doing is he's writing to a different audience. James is writing to a Jewish audience that's dispersed. And every time, not every time, sorry, oftentimes, I should say, in this letter, he's referring to final judgment. There's this idea of the end line involved. And at the end, what, what James is indicating is that this word justify isn't referring to positional justification, but rather at the end in glorification that justify will prove something. What it proves is that your faith was real. It validates genuine faith because the fruit of faith ought to be good works. And that's why James isn't saying this distinction to say not faith, yes works, He's saying faith, there there should be saving faith and that it ought to bear fruit in godliness. It ought to bear fruit in good works. So I wanted to pull up the uh, whiteboard real quick. Perfect. And uh, wanted to talk about uh, works plus faith equaling salvation versus uh, faith equaling salvation plus works. So in this um, diagram, you can see that this is actually a, a Catholic view of salvation. They say that faith plus works equals salvation. And they put works at the root. They put it at the foundation saying you have to have faith. You have to also do good works. And that is how you receive salvation from God. You have to participate. You have to do the work. 
Rather, what we see in Scripture, both James and Paul and all of Scripture would agree that faith alone is what, how we receive God's amazing grace of salvation. And the fruit born from that ought to lead to good works. And even in Ephesians, Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying that it's by grace through faith and that we are to bear uh, fruit. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. It says Ephesians 2.10. So Paul is going through the same progression, but we need to understand the audience of James. And just to clarify, um, there's some additional verses I wanted to provide in Galatians chapter 2 that clearly lay out this idea of positional justification and what is taught throughout all of Scripture. It says in uh, Galatians 2.16, it says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not, he says, by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. There is no way that we can uh, expunge our, our penalty of sin, pay off our sin debt, and contribute to accomplishing it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do it. We must trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross to pay for our sin debt. Galatians 2.20 also says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. By faith, he says, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Which takes us to our third point. Our faith has an object. Faith is impressive because of what it's put in. Right? Faith is impressive because of what it's put in, not who has the faith or, or dispenses the faith. We need to understand that faith is in Christ alone. Let's look at some verses together about salvation being in Christ alone. Ephesians 1 verse 3 talks about these blessings we receive through Christ alone. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are some of these blessings? Well, in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, it lists out just some of them. It says, But we, oh, excuse me, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's a blessing we receive through salvation. By the washing of regeneration, being born again, that's the blessing of salvation. And the renewal of the Holy Ghost, being renewed in our minds, sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly. These blessings are poured out on believers. How? He says, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the Savior, the only one. It's because of our radical union with Christ and salvation that we receive every spiritual blessing. It's in Christ. That's how we can have peace with God. It's, it's in Christ. That's how we can, we can have this, this great gift of adoption into God's family. It's because we're united with Christ. Scripture all, also talks about how salvation, in salvation, we're, we're called into Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, again, he mentions, but because of his own purpose, speaking of God and grace, which he gave us, Remember this grace in which we stand. He gave it to us in Christ Jesus before 
the ages began. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, he says, in Christ. Salvation is in Christ. And he finishes by saying, it's Christ who will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But there's more verses. In case you want more verses, I think you need more verses. There's exclusivity, right? We say not just that it's in Christ, but it's in Christ alone. It's only through Christ. Romans 5.17 For if because of one man's trespass, referring to Adam, death reigned through that one man, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The one man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews talks about we have one mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Acts 4, 11 and 12. Peter's preaching, um, and he, he's, he's saying that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected and that he has become the cornerstone, referring to prophecy because he's speaking to the Jews. And then he, he, he makes this absolute exclusive statement and saying, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The testimony of scripture is that salvation, how it happens is by grace. It's through faith and it's in Christ alone. We must understand that salvation is a work of God. It's a gift of God. And he gives us from start to finish the grace to accomplish his saving work. Lastly, I wanted to give us a little bit of a diagram. And I want to recommend to you a documentary referred to or titled American Gospel, Christ Alone. Um, my whiteboard earlier was not mine, full confession. Um, it's from this video, took a little snippet, saved me a lot of time. And this is another one from uh, this film that I highly recommend. And it lays out the five solas. And this is um, a way to fall off the horse. So maybe you're saying, man, this seems really exclusive. I agree with you, but I just don't understand why, why it's a big issue. Why teach on this? Well, there's lots of ways to get it wrong. As soon as you put a plus sign in the equation and you get equals on the other side of salvation, you, you've fallen off the horse. You don't have saving faith. You don't have saving grace, and you're not trusting in Christ alone. So the Catholic view would be it'd be grace plus merit. You cooperate and activate God's grace, or uh, they would say faith plus works. You need to actually have works that, that merits that salvation that God's going to give you. Or they say, yeah, it's in Christ alone plus other mediators. So we can pray to other people, or we use the Pope as a mediator between us and God. Or they say scripture plus tradition. So yeah, scripture's an authority, but we have other authorities we reference as well. And so we need to make sure that we're choosing which authority we want to um, follow. And then they would say, uh, yeah, we see in scripture that it's, it's to the glory of God, but it's also the glory of Mary and other saints. And we venerate the saints because they also deserve glory. And what we see in Scripture is that's totally not what it says, as we've seen over and over again. What we see is that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And Scripture is the authority that teaches this, and it is all to the glory of God alone. In Romans, I'll close with this, chapter 3, verses 21 through 27, uh, Paul just made an argument about man's sinfulness and how we are unrighteous. 
And what we need is God's righteousness. And he says regarding salvation, but now the righteousness of God, which is what we need, we need to be made right before God, has been manifested. It's been shown apart from the law. He says, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, he's saying it's not a contradiction. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all who believe, he's saying, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation, the satisfying payment by the blood of Jesus to be received by faith. And to summarize, what, why did God structure salvation this way? He says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both the just and the justifier. He is just. He is righteous. And he's the one who makes us righteous so we can be in a right relationship with him. And he says that the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Paul's conclusion that he says is, so what becomes of our boasting? He says it's excluded. By what kind of law? Or by law of works? He says, no, by the law of faith. And Paul would say this again in, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. He would reiterate that salvation is foolishness to man. And it's, it's a precious treasure to those that are being saved. And he says, why? Because it reveals the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he references Jeremiah. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord alone. So, Next week, be sure to come back and join us. We're going to continue on our study through the doctrine of salvation. We'll be in part three, and we're going to talk about total depravity, our inability to save ourselves and what Scripture says about that. So continue to pray with us, discuss with one another that we desire to grab a greater grasp of God's sovereign grace towards us sinners uh, through his word. So if you have questions, please feel free to email us, and there's some reference tools there as well if you want to continue in your study. With that, we'll dismiss, and we'll be back here in 14 minutes.